Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. It's such a pleasure to speak to Leila, founder of Kindred Capital, a hugely successful UK venture capital fund she founded in 2015. I've known Leila since she angel invested into Gusto in 2014, and more recently she and I sat on a board together. So it's easy for me to say that Leila is one of the most impressive people in the UK ecosystem I've ever met. And having gone to Harvard and Yale and starting her career at Goldman Sachs and Bain, Leila is clearly super smart. I'm even more impressed by her high EQ, reflection and people focus. In this episode, Leila will speak about how she moved from startup operator to founding and scaling a VC fund so successfully, why some startups succeed and others fail, and how the best people focus on opportunity rather than tragedy, constantly focusing on self-development. So I've got so many questions and I can't wait to deep dive into what you have learned on the journey. But Leila, first I want to hear where you grew up. Yeah, so I'm, I'm the classic product of an immigrant family. So both of my parents are Iranian, um, born and raised in, in Iran and lived there through to 1979 when the revolution happened. And at that point, you know, had to flee the country, leave everything behind and, and sort of build anew. And so my dad found a job in Texas, of all places, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, sort of right when I was being born. And even though I don't think they felt it would be a, such a prolonged period, uh, it end up, ended up really characterizing the first sort of 18 years of my life. So I was born in Houston, Texas, despite the fact that my blonde hair doesn't give me away, I typically <laughs> say. Um, but I, I really spent much of my youth just wanting to fit in, frankly. I mean, I was living amidst a sea of, of blonde Texans who sort of towered over me in terms of size and scale, which isn't difficult, you know, kind of made fun of me for having one eyebrow, which I definitely did at the time. But I, I really always felt different. And I think, you know, in my immaturity and sort of yearning for homogeneity and just fitting in, I really hated that side of myself growing up. So, you know, I wish I had a more you know, American sounding name, I would sort of shush my family when they spoke Persian to me at school pickups. And even despite having a, a natural ability for school and, and good grades, that was even something that I tried to hide because it was, it was just different. And it really wasn't until I went to university that I really embraced what it was to be different. And I was lucky enough to, to get into and go to Yale, which was my absolute dream school. And I'll never forget the questions that people asked in that first week of orientation, where it was very much around, so, so why are you here? And you know, why did the school choose you? And what makes you different? And so it was this total reframing of something that had been kind of such a weight on me for the prior 18 years, as ashamed as I am that it took me so long to recognize that, but that it, it wasn't this burden to bear, but, but rather an extraordinary gift to be distinct and different and unique. And so I feel like I've never looked back since. I've always tried to ask myself, you know, how can I be different and, and how can I do things differently and, and break the mold? How did your parents feel coming to Texas, you know, fleeing the country, leaving everything behind? Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that I can, I can certainly speak about. And it was definitely part of the narrative for us growing up. But as I get older, I realize that unless you've sort of viscerally yourself been through an experience, it's very difficult to even scratch the surface of that understanding. So, you know, it was hugely traumatic for them, um, for both my parents in different ways. And, you know, for their entire friend group and, and family, you know, we were split up all over the world. People, many of what many of my family stayed, extended family stayed in Europe and, and settled in the UK. You know, my little nucleus went to Texas. There were people in LA and Canada, you know, in Australia. So it felt very 
sort of fragmented and, and it felt like nothing, nothing was secure. And the only thing, and this is sort of, again, classic immigrant mentality, but the only thing that they knew for, for certain was that the power of hard work and dedication and education um, was what was going to see people through and that you really couldn't rely on any foundation other than yourself and your capacity to build anew. So, you know, academics was hugely important in my household. The family values that we were raised with, I think, still very much kind of carry through and, and carry deep in me today. Both my sister and I played competitive sports and, you know, we played tennis. My dad was our coach. You know, it was, it was very intense, almost sort of textbook intense. But, you know, there's just a huge amount that I still to this day take from those experiences. And oftentimes it's the hardest experiences and the most sort of traumatic experiences that end up being the most character forming. And so there were certainly, you know, a number of things in that vein that, that made me who I am today. And at what point did you feel like properly at home in the U.S.? It really wasn't until university. I mean, that for me, I sort of felt like I found my spiritual home. And, you know, it's really interesting. My partner and I, one of my partners at Kindred, we, we took a trip to China maybe last year, um, but certainly recently. And there was this question around the table where um, maybe it was six or seven of us. And it was the question of what is home to you? You know, how do you, how do you define home? And it was interesting because we were having this discussion in, in Shanghai where actually no single individual around that table grew up in Shanghai. So they, I had either grown up in various different parts of China um, or elsewhere around the world. And I think the realization for all of us in coming out of that discussion was that really home is characterized by the people that you're surrounded by. And now for me, home is, is where my, my family is. Um, and that's sort of the family that I'm, I'm building with my husband. And, you know, I would characterize really, really deep, close friendships as, as being family. But at the time, it was, I just didn't feel like I had found my people in, in Texas. And I found that when I went to university, and it was about what made you different, and it was about being quirky, and it was about being smart was cool. And, you know, all those things that I think I really struggled with for the prior 18 years, all of a sudden became these great strengths. And, you know, I think it's, it's been a phenomenal ride since then. And, you know, grateful also to have the struggle that I had prior to that, because I think the appreciation of it, therefore, was so much more profound. I love the psychological reframing. That's super powerful. And did you always have a passion for math? I always had a passion for it. I mean, I think it's interesting as I, as I think about now, like this huge privileged position that we find ourselves in kind of being some ways into our career is that you get asked for advice from folks who are earlier in their career, um, either their academic career or their, their professional career than you are. And, you know, as I think back to the things that I wish I'd done differently, I don't know if I would have made any different choices. I may still have studied math, but I think some of the rationale as to why I was studying it You know, I, I wish that I would have maybe listened to a more sort of true, authentic self and, and what I really enjoyed and maybe, maybe what I didn't enjoy as well in, in those earlier years, as opposed to there was a philosophy in my household. And I think probably more generally in terms of how we determine academic success, certainly in the U.S., um, which is like get straight A's. You know, there's something mm -hmm. called a straight A report card and like that's what you strive for. So it's not about disproportionately like really leaning into English language and literature because that's where you shine. And it's kind of okay if you don't have, you know, a huge disposition to one or the other subjects. Um, you know, in my household, it was like, if you got a, a, a straight A report card, but one of your grades was an A minus, like all the focus and orientation was around, well, why did you get an A minus there? As opposed to maybe the orientation could be, well, what's the thing that you can get an A plus in? And it's that whole, that whole question of like, do you play into your strengths or do you try and fix your weaknesses? And I think, you know, now my philosophy very much is, you know, you, you have enough self-awareness to recognize where you have a unique ability and something where when you look to your right and left, you know, there's not always going to be someone who's sort of better at you than crunching the numbers or better at you than a public speaking or better at you than something else. But there's something that you uniquely have and really trying to lean into that and, and capitalize on that. So I think it, I was still in the frame, uh, you know, first year of university when I, I chose the subject matter I wanted to, to major in, was still in that frame of saying, like, we have to be good at everything. And so for me, I, I, math felt like it gave me still a huge amount of breadth, like it didn't narrow what I was going to do from that point forward. And I actually double majored in math and philosophy because I kind of couldn't decide in the end, right? And in a way, 
I think it's a gift to be really curious and to want to learn a lot about a lot of different things. But I also kind of wish that in a way I'd been encouraged earlier on in my, in my life and in my career to say, well, there may be some things that you just feel deeply, deeply passionate about and they happen to coincide with the things that you're really, really good at and sort of lean into that and go for that. Very powerful point. And what was your first job? So my first job was in investment banking, because obviously, if you have more of a quant background um, and you have an Iranian parent, you know, working for <laughs> Goldman Sachs is like winning the Nobel Prize in the Iranian community. So my first job was in investment banking. And I had a really formative moment there, which I, I will never forget. And, you know, it was one of those classic M&A analyst experiences in the early 2000s where you just get brutalized, um, you know, almost in the sort of rite of passage fraternity style way because your VP or your MD was brutalized when they were in your shoes. And I was assigned to a deal, went into the office in New York at eight in the morning. I worked until probably two or 3 a.m. that night and then slept under my desk until 6 a.m. and then sort of worked that whole day until 6 p.m. So call it like, you know, 36 hours straight. I was mentally and physically tired, but I was so proud of the work that I'd done. And I valiantly took my finished pitch deck into my MD's office to present it to him. And um, I walked into his office and he looked at me a little perplexed, like, you know, surprised. And, and he was like, oh, did no one tell you, you know, that deal isn't going through. Like, we don't need that work anymore. Oh, no. And I, I clearly looked like I was going to cry. <laughs> so I had probably a lower lip tremble. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm still not good at masking my emotions, but certainly wasn't then. And he looked at me with, with very kind eyes and asked me to close his office door and, and sit down. And he told me that if I were going to work in, in that industry, that I had to toughen up. And I couldn't take things so personally. And I couldn't get so emotionally attached to my work. And, you know, a job was a job. You win some, you lose some. And in that moment, I, I really kicked myself back into gear. You know, I put my game face back on. I wiped my tears and I was sort of saying in my head, like, you know, God, how embarrassing, you know, he's, he's so right. And this won't happen again. And, and I decided to walk home that night to my closet sized apartment in New York city. And within sort of 30 minutes of leaving his office and walking away from it all, I realized that that really wasn't who I wanted to be. You know, I wanted to be someone who loved my job and who was really connected to it and who cared deeply about it. And that was both like the people I worked with and the work that I was doing. And I'm, I'm a really firm believer that one's environment, you know, it shapes us um, and it shapes us as, as parents and as friends and as children. And, you know, it shapes every aspect of our lives. And I just didn't want to be the product of an environment that had that detached attitude to the job. So so I left. And, and, and since then, you know, I've had like a number of different company experiences, you know, from my years at Bain and Company to joining Innocent Drinks here in the UK to, you know, working with Endeavor in Argentina, which is a nonprofit that supports entrepreneurs in developing countries to my time in Silicon Valley. And now as a VC in Europe, that is the common thread for me, like people and emotional connection and caring sometimes too much um, with all its peaks and troughs and complexities. Like that's the only way I know how to practice the craft. Um, it's, it's the only thing that makes me feel really alive while doing it. Such a powerful point. Thank you for sharing. And was Bain different in, in lots of ways culturally? It was, it was, I mean, one of my, one of my main takeaways from Bain, because there, there is a case team survey that goes out to every single team that is working on a Bain project globally. And that survey happens, I, I forget if it was once a week or once a month, but it's a very regular cadence. And it asks questions like, you know, are we working on the client's most important problems? And do I feel valued? And how's my work-life balance? And that kind of thing. And so it asks a whole set of, of questions to every member of the team. And then you get together, you know, be it once a week or once a month, and you, you review those scores and you actually see how your team ranks amongst the global cases that are going on at Bain. And one of my cases that I was on for just way too long was very consistently like one of the very bottom scores um, in the entire kind of global Bain system. It was very, very low on, on the scoring. And, you know, a big part of that was around work-life balance and burnout and, and, and all the rest of it. And nothing actually changed. So, 
you know, we didn't actually move up the ranks and, you know, work-life balance wasn't suddenly something that, that wasn't an issue anymore. But just the fact that we were being asked for our opinion, we mm-hmm. were stating our opinion, and then it was being fed back to us, and it was transparent across the organization. Like that in and of itself made a big difference. And so it was small things like that. Like I think I probably worked, you know, just as hard at Bain as I, I did at, at an investment bank. But I felt like, A, the philosophy was how do we bring people around the table who fundamentally think differently about the same problem? So they were trying to get away from groupthink. So they hired people who had, you know, studied history and English literature and Russian and math. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't just hire people who had a math and econ background. And then I think they, they asked the questions and they seemed at least to really care about our self-actualization in the job. And, and it was just an amazing training for me. So yeah, I'm really grateful for my, my time there. And, and still when I come across a Bainey, you know, oftentimes I say we, and, you know, I have to remind myself that it was, you know, 14 years ago or 13 years ago that I left that organization. Fascinating. And what did you learn in Argentina? I mean, I think one of the big things was kind of the culture of entrepreneurship and even the culture of giving back more broadly, because, because Endeavor is a nonprofit. Um, it's a nonprofit that supports entrepreneurs in developing countries. Um, so I learned a lot about the job itself, meaning you know the the characteristics of great entrepreneurs. They have this incredible, you know, very well honed search and selection process and criteria, and that was all really new to me at the time. Um, and so being immersed in that was really cool. But in Argentina, like being an entrepreneur at the time, and this is sort of 2008, nine, like being an entrepreneur was like a euphemism for being unemployed, basically, as I think it probably is in like many parts of the world. It wasn't this like hugely aspirational thing that the smartest people in the world went out to do. So there was like a cultural adaptation to that, but also this cultural adaptation around giving back and philanthropy in some way, because Endeavor is a nonprofit. It relies on donations and corporate sponsors, et cetera. And we had this, this big vision to say, well, we've been in Argentina for a while, like almost a decade at that point as an organization. And can we actually create a model where because we've been a part of, of helping some entrepreneurs develop these incredible success stories and go on to, to great profitability and success, could we encourage them to donate or provide some portion of that success? You know, it could be in 1% of profits after a certain point or whatever the structure is back to the organization that helped them get off the ground. And could that be a model of sort of sustaining the organization over time? And that was a really difficult thing to do because I had taken for granted that growing up in the U.S., you know, there's a culture of community service and giving back and volunteer work, et cetera, that I'd really taken for granted, but just wasn't omnipresent. And and it wasn't something that was, you know, taken as a given in Argentina. So I think it's part of what led to me really wanting to, to go out to Silicon Valley, which was, you know, this idea that you could be in the epicenter of a place where entrepreneurship is not a euphemism for being unemployed. It's like what absolutely everybody wants to do. There's this sense of, of optimism um, that you can actually do it, but also there's a sense of real community and sort of paying it forward and helping one another and collaboration. And, and that density, I think, was, was something that I felt lacking in my role in Argentina, but really interesting to experience both sides of it, right? And then figure out actually how to, how to create it, which I hope is, is a part of what we're doing here in the UK. And in Silicon Valley, you then became a startup and scale-up operator, co-founding a, a genomics company developing a, a DNA sequencing technology, I think. So I would love to hear all about founding that company and, and scaling it. Yeah, it's, it, it was a really circuitous path to doing that, um, kind of like my, my path into VC. It feels like most things for me haven't been charted in, it, in advance, but I moved out to the Valley, you know, really knowing that I wanted to have an immersive experience kind of in the beating heart of the tech ecosystem, which was, and, and to a large extent still is, in Silicon Valley. And I moved to first join a company called Plum District as their GM. Uh, and Plum District was, you know, this is prior to Groupon's IPO. It was sort of riding the wave of daily deals. It was, it was a daily deal site. 
And I joined because there the lead partner at a VC fund who had just sort of put some seed money into it thought that it was an exciting proposition. So it, there wasn't a huge amount of time and thought spent before doing that, but it ended up again being like this really incredible experience for me. It was it was short lived. You know, I stayed there for about seven, maybe eight months before leaving to to do Genapsis, but. Um, those eight months were were hugely valuable to me, to my thinking, to my learning. Plum District was a victim or sort of a casualty of premature scale. Um, and that's both, I think, from the kind of management CEO decision making at the time, but also the, the quantum of capital that we ingested in a really short period of time and then felt huge pressure to to expend, right? So my partner, Mark, who, who you know very well, because he's uh, worked with you at Gusto for many years and sits on your board, but you know, he has this phrase in venture capital, which is that he feels that he's seen way more companies die of, of indigestion than of starvation, right? And I think it's, it's so true. You know, we sort of died of, of indigestion. I think we took on too much too soon, hadn't worked out the unit economics, you know, hadn't figured out the feedback loops until it was too late, et cetera. And I think it was a focus on sort of vanity metrics and keeping up with the Joneses as opposed to being on our own path and really getting it right before we hit the scale button. And I think for me personally, it was a real journey of employee to leadership, really. I'd sort of viewed my job, my role up until that point as being someone who is assigned a task and then goes out and executes that task brilliantly. And if I'm asked to do something 100%, like I'll come back and I'll bring it and it will be 120%. And I, in that moment where all of a sudden I had this shift from saying, well, I actually don't believe in the decisions that we're taking. Um, you know, I, I don't believe that these are the right decisions. And, and frankly, there were um, some decisions that were made that I felt like even bordered on sort of a, an ethical consideration in terms of like how we went about things. And I had to actually make that shift from saying, well, I'm not someone who is hired just to go in and execute like a robot. Like I was someone who was hired into a senior leadership position to question, like to provide my point of view, to think, to challenge and, and to be challenged. And so that was a big aha moment. I ended up leaving that company with nothing lined up after that, you know, seven months after getting my MBA, um, sort of letting down in my mind, the lead venture partner who had brought me into the deal, who's quite an influential person in, in the Valley. So there's a lot that was really scary about it for me but really important to have done it, to kind of flex that muscle of, of doing the right thing 100% of the time instead of 99% of the time, right? So I don't have to constantly evaluate if like this is one time that's the exception to the rule, but rather, you know, I just have a line in the sand and if something crosses that line, then, you know, it's not for me anymore. So I was sort of left figuring out what should I do now? And I met this founder who had just spun out of Stanford um, he just gone his. He spent the last six years working on his PhD there. He had some really interesting IP around reading the code of DNA quickly, efficiently, cheaply. I didn't know much about the space at the time, but I knew I wanted to do something that mattered. I quickly became really fascinated with the sector, and he was a really great teacher for me, and sort of super passionate himself. He had a personal story that was motivating him, and and so it was it was very easy to get behind. and And I said, listen, I'm sort of almost relationship style wise, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm not in this for something, you know, um, serious, I'm, I'm going to help out for a couple of weeks as I figure out what I want to do with my life. But I'll, I'll put together a business plan for you and maybe help you raise like a little bit of angel funding. And then, you know, I'll, I'll figure out what I'm actually going to do. And that essentially turned into four years of building that company alongside each other, um, you know, raising 50 or so million in, in venture capital from some really extraordinary venture firms, you know, going through all the crazy ups and downs of one day being on the unicorn trajectory and one day hitting a roadblock and feeling like it's all falling through your fingertips and then the next day being back on the unicorn trajectory. And so it, it was a crazy, crazy ride, but again, you know, hugely formative as I think about the type of work I get to do today. And why did you decide to leave? So my husband got relocated to London for work and I, I tried to stay with the company and, and do a painful commute from London to Silicon Valley for about nine months. It's, wow. it's not something I would recommend to like my arch enemy. And I, I sort of, I, I've met my, my now business partners, you know, in that period of time. And as I was telling them what I was doing, you know, I got a lot of 
um, big eyed looks and, and sort of questions of, of my judgment of why did you think that you could possibly <laughs> do a job where you're commuting back and forth between that distance. But I'd wanted to stay with the business because we'd had so many sharp, jagged edges along that journey. And we had just managed to raise a really exciting Series B. And, you know, we'd worked tirelessly to get to that point where we finally had the capital to be able to kind of invest in the talent and invest in the infrastructure. And so it was an exciting inflection point and moment in the business's journey. And, and I wanted to, to stick with it, but realized pretty quickly that, that that kind of commute was the road to mental and physical breakdown. And so I, I started to look at what I wanted to do next and really thought about, you know, building another company and, and just wanted to go out there and talk to as many entrepreneurs and, and startup founders as I possibly could to kind of see what, what problem I cared most about solving and potentially join one of them or start something on, on my own. And it just so happened that in that process of speaking to so many of them, I sort of realized how relatively underserved they were by the capital base here vis-a-vis -vis what I'd seen in the U.S. And really just got super passionate about the idea of building a company that was a VC fund and orienting it around, you know, the, the best people that I could possibly find, you know, the smartest people, the people who you, you pinch yourself that you get to work with every day. And the stars just kind of aligned for those people to be available and for us to be able to put our heads together and brainstorm a new model and a new way of doing things. Well, so you launched Kindred Capital in 2015, and what was the process like of raising your first fund? Brutal. <laughs> Excruciating. I'm going to like look up synonyms for those words and then just continue on that path for the next 10 minutes. I mean, it was very exhilarating. Um, so on one side, just like founders who are starting a business, you know, we had a thesis or a hypothesis. We were out in the market. We were validating it. You know, you were actually one of those very first conversations and you know, so important to get that direct feedback from our customer, right? So you were like the aspirational customer for us of if we could get Timo to take our money, then, you know, we're doing something right. And we'd written out all the things that we wanted to break around the model. You know, this is what we want to change. This is what we want to do differently. And we'd written that down on, on these index cards and went in front of these entrepreneurs you included who we respected so much and asked them to stack rank, you know, first of all, put these into a yes pile and a no pile, like this matters to you, this doesn't matter to you. And then to stack rank um, out of the things that matter to me, like this is what matters to me the most. And so that process of building and ideating was just so fun and so cool because A, I was working with my partners at the time who are, you know, some of the most brilliant people I would say on the planet. Yes, I'm, I'm slightly biased, but um, on the planet. And then we, we'd handpicked and cherry-picked these incredible entrepreneurs. And then we got to sit down with them and get their views as well. So like the intellectual horsepower and kind of exhilaration of, of being in that process was awesome. Going out and actually pitching a new model to LPs and a new fund was really hard. And it was hard because like the more I'm in this industry, the more I realize that like you guys are the ones who are actually changing the way the world works. You're the ones who have the highest risk appetite and, and you're kind of putting everything into your individual venture. And then you have the venture folks who are, I think, one step removed from that. You know, they have some risk appetite, but, you know, they still at the end of the day have a basket. They have a portfolio. They're thinking somewhat rationally. You know, we have LPs and structures and so on. And then you have the LPs. So like the investors into venture funds. And the further out you get from the actual entrepreneur, the more and more, I think, risk averse it becomes. And so we just looked different, right? We were, you know, two older guys and two younger women and, you know, too tall, too small. <laughs> we, we just looked <laughs> like this motley crew and people couldn't put us in a bucket. They couldn't categorize us um, in, in the way that was familiar to them. And I think there was a lot of misconception, a lot of bias, whether it was, you know, ageist bias, quite frankly, of like, how do you work together as an equal partnership with equal economics and equal influence? Like, is it the older guys that are like on the beach doing nothing and the younger people are working the whole time? Or is it the older guys that are actually the insight and the pattern recognition and like the younger ones are just apprentices? Like, how does this work? And I don't think people had necessarily natu the natural ability to see something as, you can bring equal value to the table. You just have to do it in very different ways. And that's what an equal partnership is. And that's what complementarity of team is. So 
it was a journey. I think like all fundraising processes, it's a funnel. And, you know, we had to have a very, very wide top of the funnel. We got super lucky with some really phenomenal people and firms who came around us in the early days and supported. And now having just closed our second fund, you know, it's a different world of being able to actually showcase something that wasn't kind of a theory on paper, but is something in practice that's out there that we have data around and and we can sort of demonstrate is, is working, right, at least on paper. You're obviously extremely successful at investing, and I want to hear about the successes. But can you share any of the worst investments you made, obviously on a no-name basis, and and particularly what are the lessons you learned from failure? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the hardest part about this business, right? You you look at the statistics, and you know if you invest in. 20, 30 companies, there's going to be a small handful of them, if you're lucky, that end up being those breakout successes. And, you know, you have a whole basket in the middle, which, you know, doesn't go exactly to plan, you know, isn't the big outcome that everyone would have hoped for, but kind of survive or make it through with some sort of one to five X return. And then you have those that just don't work. And actually, really interestingly, in the fundraising process, we saw a huge distinction between you know, the tier one LPs, as I'd call them, and then kind of everyone else. And as the sophistication level of the LP went up, they were asking questions about our write-off rate, not because they were scared off by the fact that you would have a write-off rate or that that write-off rate would be somewhat sizable, but rather that seeing that write-off rate meant that you were taking enough risk. And I think as you went down that sophistication curve, you know, talking about how you weren't able to salvage some of your investments and things became to areas of real challenge and concern. So it's a part of the gig and, you know, you just have to get comfortable that that's a part of what you have to go through and do. And you have to do it, I think, with a sense of, of again, empathy for that founder journey and then real introspection for yourself in kind of evaluating the decision-making process at the time. And I, I say process because, I don't think it's a mistake when you invest in a company that doesn't work out. I think the mistake is where there was some process breakdown or there was some judgment breakdown that could have been known at the time. And so I think that's what we really try and focus on in terms of our own muscle memory and getting better. And so for me personally, like an example that I can give is um, we all have have biases, right? It's impossible to get completely bias free, but I think what we can become is, is bias aware. And as I think about the types of entrepreneurs that, you know, I gravitate to the most or I get most excited about, they tend to be kind of relatively extroverted, quite articulate, like those visionary type of founders who can sell ice to the Eskimo and, you know, who can paint this amazing image for you of like what the world will look like when their product and their technology is is out there doing what it should be doing. And I think that's great. And that's still really important in terms of I think founders do need to sell like they're selling to, to customers, to recruits, to follow on investors, etc. It's an important skill. But they also have to to do, right? They have to have this drive to action. And we invest so early on, sometimes at the pre-seed stage, where, you know, it could be a person and an idea. So actually validating that they can execute, that they are executing, that they are building things can be difficult at the point where it's it's more idea oriented. So the tagline for me that I've come out of, and I, I should definitely get this on a bumper sticker somewhere, but is that I need to back executors with a dream, but not dreamers <laughs> with the potential to execute. Um, Love it. And, That's and that, very powerful. That I think for me was, has been a real learning over the years. That's incredibly powerful. And you know, you came from a business background, obviously in a business, you get immediate feedback, you have a million KPIs to follow. Whereas from the outside, it looks like if you are in a VC fund, you invest your money, you wait for five or seven years. (laughs) And then at some time, at some point, you have a feedback loop and you learn. Obviously, I'm oversimplifying. But what mechanisms are there in place to kind of, you know, generate some, some faster feedback and learning on the way? This is a really interesting question also in this moment in time, because I think the the pandemic and this radical impact that it's had on every single company, you know, for some it's a headwind, for some it's a tailwind, for all it's a change. And it's a change to the nature of how they do business, how they recruit, how they um, create culture, et cetera. And I think really the only constant, I mean, this is a this is a statement that exists for the world in general, but certainly in entrepreneurship, you know, the only constant is change. And 
I think it, we've seen this bifurcation or I, I've seen it, you know, in a very pronounced way. It's always there in a subtle way, but in a very pronounced way where certain entrepreneurs and certain CEOs see this as a real opportunity and d- despite how it's affected their business, right? They see this almost reset, this blank sheet of paper as an opportunity and, and not as a threat, right? They're fundamentally approaching things with a mentality of openness and not of fear. And so we have certain founders that are like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm like looking at our productivity metrics for everyone who's working remotely. I've, you know, done all these surveys. I figured out how people want things to change and, and we're just rewriting the playbook, right? Or we're realizing that there was no playbook and we're creating our own. And that's really motivating. And then there are others who are like, I can't wait for this to just go back to normal, right? And they're talking about how, you know, as soon as is it's possible to do that, they're going to try and get everybody back into the office because there really isn't any replacement for for that sort of physicality of being together and serendipity and so on. And I think whereas both are probably true, it's a mentality and, and ideology set. So I, I say that because I think that for me at least is really what has foreshadowed success in companies from a very early stage is like, you know that there are certain founders that no matter what you throw at them, no matter what challenges come along the way, that they will find solutions to those problems. They'll overcome those obstacles. And in large part, I think they will view them as opportunities to be better. It's hard to diligence at the outset, but you know, there's a number of things that you can look at from people's previous experience, even if it's a 20-year-old whose you know, previous experience is academia plus you know, some projects on the side. But it's certainly something that I think you see in the wild you know, immediately after you make an investment. So growth mindset and resilience kind of foreshadowing success, to summarize it, I guess. And talk me through startups becoming scale-ups and the common denominator that has to happen in a scale-up to really make that journey, which is you know, a really tough one and lots of companies still fail. It's probably the toughest area, I think. You know, I think it's, it's, that, it's those adolescent years, right? It's the years where I had my one eyebrow. Um, it's, they're, they're very painful. I, I think you know, being a founder is both the greatest but also the hardest job in the world because every year or, or you know, if you're on a hyper growth trajectory, like every quarter, every month, um, you're building a new company. It has, you know, new challenges, new functional requirements, new people issues, like new processes need to be implemented. And we oftentimes will have this question with founders that we back where, you know, they may be playing a certain functional role, right? Like they're the the product person at the outset when they're not big enough to have a dedicated like CPO or VP of product. And they get to a certain point and you have to say, okay, well, if you were sent a resume or a CV or you did an interview and the person in that CV or in that interview was you, would you hire that person as your VP of product or your CPO? And if the answer is no, then you are not the right person to be playing that role and you need to find someone who is world leading in that capacity, in that function for your company. And you have to learn to let go and I think the fundamental job of what it is to be a leader, to be a founder in an organization evolves and changes so much. Like even I'm thinking about you right now and, you know, what you have to do on this journey with Gusto and the fact that you're taking even minutes out of your day, let alone more than an hour to sit down with me and do this podcast. And, you know, there's a number of other people who you're listening to and learning from and with, and, you know, you're making that time to do that you know, not because you have 25 hours of the day, although I'm convinced that you do, but (laughs) that that is what will be required of you in order to be the right leader for Gusto. And that, you know, wasn't what was required of you in, in year one or year two. And most people find it really difficult to say, well, what's worked for me in the past is potentially not going to serve me in the future. And so I need to evolve. I need to change along with it. And it's part of the reason why we, you know, as a part of fund two at Kindred, we've underwritten executive coaching for our founders. So, you know, we pay for it out of our fees. Um, we get no back channel. You know, it's, it's not something that we're looking to get information around, but it's a resource and, and a coach for each individual founder as they're on that journey, both sort of personal and professional, because we all know that you can't separate the two of, you know, how do they become the person that they would hire every year, every quarter for the job that they're doing. And I think when you think about it from that standpoint, you actually start to force people to actually hire out the teams, to actually delegate to people who, you know, have more expertise than they do. And 
it's that classic sort of A players hire A players and B players hire C players, you know, just get people who are better than you around you. And it's the only way that you're going to be able to scale. I love that coaching point. Um, I've actually just finished a one year coaching diploma course. Um, pending well, with in all 36. your copious spare time, you can oh, be one man. of our coaches. It's been painful. No, no, thanks. Um, uh, I mean, to me, the, the point was to be the best possible CEO I can be. Increasingly, that means being a coach to the wider organization, to the leadership team, to the management team, to high potentials, you know, to everyone. Every single conversation is meaningful. The board needs feedback. So I've purely done it for that reason. But I have also worked with seven coaches myself over the last wow. three years. Um, so clearly I needed a lot of coaching on this <laughs> journey, but it's, it's so powerful. So I love that you guys are doing that. That's fantastic. Yeah, it, we've already seen, I mean, I think there's a selfish reason for it, which is like we're in the human capital business. We're not in the financial capital business, especially not at the stage where we play, right, which is predominantly around seed. It, it's just about people. And the challenge with a human capital oriented business is it just doesn't scale. So you have to find ways of being very high impact, enormous support for these teams and these individuals with limited input. Otherwise, you know, you're going to basically get pulled into one single company as opposed to as you're supposed to be doing sort of building portfolios and, and having longevity to the model. And so having a coach is leverage, really. I mean, it's saying for us, how do we support these folks with people who are fit for purpose for the struggles and challenges and opportunities that they have in that moment? And, you know, it's great for them and, and great for us. Really powerful point. And you have seen so many boards operate. How do you feel about boards? What makes a board great? I think, I mean, if I had to put one word in, I would summarize it with engagement. I'm, I'm probably, I'm coming off of a, a, a recent board meeting where there was, you know, there, were, there was some engagement, but there was also a lack of engagement from some folks around the table. And whether that's because they're disengaged in that they aren't prepared enough for that conversation, they're not the right people to be sitting in that seat. They don't feel that they're empowered to make comments or to create challenge or what, whatever the reason is. I find that those are the most, you know, I, I could talk about like what makes a great board meeting and what makes a bad board, board meeting and it will be super, super obvious. So instead I'm trying to get into the, like there's this like really insidious, small nuance, but um, you know, tiny snowball that becomes big and unmanageable issue, which in my mind is that issue of sort of reticence and, and disengagement. And so I think, in general, making sure that boards are small enough to be nimble and quick and flexible and all the things that a startup will need, but also small enough where every individual person who's sitting in that seat feels a huge responsibility to add genuine value both in and out of the boardroom. You know, those are the boards that I think are really exciting and fun. And, you know, I sit on a board with three people in total. It's me, one other person, and the founder. And it's fun, you know, and it's really it's really engaging and there's nowhere to hide. And, you know, if you're silent in that conversation, you know, what are you doing taking up that seat? Like, what are you doing in that room? And so I think this concept of like earning the right to sit at that table and that right shouldn't be earned by just writing a check. It should be kind of constantly evaluated in the same way that, you know, we constantly evaluate management teams and, and there's churn. Like, I, I think there should be more churn on boards. It's a fantastic point. I agree. And you've worked at Goldman Sachs in investment banking. You've um, been on so many boards and now you are in the VC land. Women tend to be in the minority in all those, those three kind of areas. How do you feel about that? It's interesting. I mean, it was never something that I thought very much about. I mean, especially even if I go back to my, my academic life, majoring in math was also, it was very male dominant. And I remember even in business school, um, like Sheryl Sandberg had uh, come to Harvard and she was giving a talk about women in business. And I remember the title um, of the talk was, was about women in business. And I thought, well, that's really annoying, actually. Like, I'm not a woman in business. Like, I'm a person in business. Mm -hmm. And I, I sort of, in some ways, like, went against that categorization because I didn't feel that different, right? And I didn't want to call out the difference in a way that, that, you know, I, I hadn't felt like it had hindered me in any way at that point. And I hadn't firsthand seen sort of any discrimination that could have come from the fact that I had that difference. And, and I think some of that has really changed as I have 
come into the venture sphere because I think statistics are a really difficult thing to deny, um, not in terms of like number of people in the industry, but like looking at, you know, dollars that are going to female founded startups, um, you know, thinking about like I, I've invested now in a, in a fintech slash um, reproductive health company. So working on financial access solutions for mm. reproductive health and, and access to reproductive technology. And people are calling that femtech. And, you know, I find that like insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, by the way, it's, it's founded by a man who him and his wife went through many failed cycles of IVF and, and sort of he's building the company that he wished he'd existed as they were going through that journey. So I think this journey for me has kind of created more of a desire for me to support, um, you know, just getting more awareness of perspective bias that we have when we're making investment decisions, you know, thinking about our pipelines and our funnels, thinking about how we categorize and talk about things. And actually a good friend of mine, um, Sarah Cannon, who's, she's now a partner at Index, but she was telling me about her journey into her current role. And she was, you know, she's absolutely brilliant and she was coveted by, you know, so many different venture firms. And so she asked the question and these firms will go nameless, but they are literally top 10 firms, you know, you can, you can list them off. She was in their final processes and she'd ask a question of, so why do you want to hire a woman? Um, Why is it important to you to hire a woman? And she said like the answers that came back were really, really interesting. You know, for some of them, they were really surprised that she asked the question and kind of didn't have a very good answer. And it was clear that maybe some of it was some top down pressure from their LPs or from the industry. And, and then, you know, slightly better answer to the question was around um, the fact that, you know, they, they were investing in a lot of female-oriented companies um, where they said, you know, the purse strings are controlled 80% by women. Uh, and so we want to have more women in those investment committee deliberations representing sort of voice of the customer. Um, but the, the, the index folks, and I think what really got her excited about joining there is, um, I think it was with, with Danny Reimer, the conversation where he said, well, women are half the population. I don't want to be fishing in half the talent pool. And it was just about like, you know, I want to get access to the best talent. So I want to make sure that I'm fishing in the right pool so I get access to the smartest people. And I think that's how I think about it too, is, you know, it, it matters what questions you're asking and it matters why you're doing certain things. And I do really care about this issue now in a way that five years ago or 10 years ago, it just didn't feel relevant for me. Mm. Um, but the way we go about it is, is almost equally important. Yeah, it's a very powerful point. Thanks for sharing that. And on a more personal level, Leila, like you, you are very, very driven. I know you work incredibly hard. How do you unwind? You know, how do you energize yourself? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really embarrassing in a way <laughs> because I love spending time with my, my family and my kids. And I, I mean, I just feel it's almost, it's hard to find the words to encapsulate sort of how much nourishment that gives me. But I also, you know, kind of an ideal night for me once I get them in bed um, (laughs) would be, you know, unwinding, taking a bath, chilling out instead of like listening to calming music or headspace. I'd probably be watching like a video of Bill Gurley or something like that. Like it's, (laughs) it's really, really embarrassing, but I really love the job that I get to do. I find it completely and utterly fascinating and captivating. Uh, I think I am like one one thousandth of what I want to be in that role. And um, there's so, so much more growth for me ahead in terms of, you know, getting better and better. And I just want to learn from people who are smarter than me and better than me. And, and like, I find that, I find that deeply, deeply fulfilling. So yeah, it's the way I unwind from work is like thinking more about work is a little bit antithetical, but um, it sort of takes me into a different plane. And you mentioned your kids, um, you know, you have managed to build the company whilst you and your husband um, have ha- both have had hugely, you know, difficult jobs and raising three kids at the same time. That's absolutely incredible. How have you found that journey? Yeah, I have, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I, um, I mean, the, the TLDR is like, it's the greatest privilege of my life to, to get to do that, right? Like to be growing a firm and growing a family at the same time. And, and if I could go back and do things differently, you know, I wouldn't change anything. Um, having said that, I think it's, it's a really dangerous notion to share with young women or men that one can have it all. And, and that if we try hard enough and we put our mind to it, you know, we can kind of breeze through some of those challenges of that famous balancing mm-hmm. act and, and find ways to be super women it's really, really hard. 
And sometimes I, I wish people would speak more openly about that hardship so that when it's hard for the next person, they don't feel like they're doing something wrong. And actually it being hard is doing it right. Like I think you're putting your whole self into many different aspects of you know, work and life and family. And despite that challenge, like, you know, there are definitely moments where it feels like the wheels might be coming off the bus, but like, my God, I think, you know, my kids make me so much better. You know, they make me a better person. They make me a better professional. We had a tough time with them in many ways because, you know, life happens and we had a set of unforeseen medical issues and healthcare issues. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, much of that still persists to this day, but it's just made me a, a deeper, richer, more empathetic human being. And like, I'm in the judgment business. I'm in the people judgment business. I'm not even in the company judgment business. And it's given me this dimension and understanding of what it is to, to really care. You know, it's given me this deeper appreciation for different definitions of successes, you know, different, different paths. And I think there's many things that I only ever understood at the kind of academic or theoretical level, but not at that deep vis- visceral level that, that I currently um, understand on a much, much deeper, much, much deeper level. So my, my TLDR is, you know, go for it, throw yourself into absolutely everything. My brother-in-law was talking about me when I w- said I wanted to have a third child and, and he said, um, you know, there's something almost reckless about Layla and he sort of said it with a bit of a, a, a smile and, and with a lot of love. But um, I think that is a little bit of my, my personality and my character is, you know, if we have a lot of really great things and the biggest challenge we have is there aren't enough hours in the day to do all those things that we love, you know, that's such a privileged position to be in. Well, I can't wait to see you and your husband and the kids in person again. It's been um, a long time and lockdown is, is getting painful. Leila, can you give any, any advice to founders or leaders who are thinking about scaling themselves? What's like the top advice you can give? We've covered one of them, which is I think, you know, it's really important to look within, but um, it's very hard to do as a single standalone entity. So surrounding yourself with people who will not tell you what to do, but who will ask you questions and, you know, have, have faith that those answers are in you somewhere, but you may need someone to help you tease them out. Um, so the concept of, of a coach or, you know, it, it could even be in sort of a peer group, which I think for me is, is, is very relevant to what Kindred is doing in, in founders helping founders. And then I think the other thing I'd say is kind of find, find a way of making your 24-hour day a 30-hour day. And I think the way to do that is to ensure that every conversation you have to the extent that it's possible, like everything you're thinking about, every relationship that you have is a generative one, is something that you can go into that discussion and you can give a lot of your, your mental capacity and your physical energy and you can come out of that conversation more energized with more capacity and more energy to go and do the next thing because it it takes a huge amount of energy like as you know well (laughs) and there will always be things that kind of sap that energy from you even if it's just a 30-minute meeting but oh you just don't want to go in and talk to that person or talk about that subject or whatever it is and if you can try and limit those things and orient your day around the person you spend an hour with, but it gives you three more hours of productivity after that because you're so excited about the things that you've talked about and learned and ideated around. Like that's ultimately, I think, how you, how you scale yourself and, and how you give yourself the energy to do greater things. 